Welcome to On The Square, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square in collaboration with The Maidan. I am Dr. Saad Abdul-Khabir, Senior Editor of Sapelo Square and Curator Producer of this podcast, where every month we get on the square and into some real talk about race and Islam in the Americas. Assalamu alaikum. I am Ambata Kazi Nance, Sapelo Square's Arts and Culture Editor. On this episode, we discuss Black maternal health and the historic and contemporary roles of Black and Black Muslim birth workers in Africa and America. Our guest today is the Queen Mother of Midwifery, Shafia Monroe. Shafia Monroe is a renowned midwife, doula trainer, cultural competency trainer, master of public health, motivational speaker, and writer. She is a lifelong learner of organic gardening and herbal medicine. She began studying midwifery in the 1970s at 16 years old to help end high infant mortality in her community and organize for reproductive justice. Born in Brookline, Massachusetts with roots in Alabama, Shafia has lived and worked in Portland, Oregon for over 30 years. She is the founder of ICTC, the International Center for Traditional Childbearing, the first national nonprofit created to increase the number of Black midwives and doulas of color as a way to diversify the midwifery profession for better birth outcomes. In 2013, she created Shafia Monroe Consulting Birthing Change to help healthcare providers and doulas achieve cultural competency, increase clients, and improve birth outcomes. She is the owner of SMC Full Circle Doula Birth Companion Training that is built on spirituality and reclaiming traditional birth practices to heal and empower families to improve maternity care. Since 2002, Shafia has trained more than 5,000 SMC Full Circle Doula Birth Companions worldwide. Shafia mentors hundreds of people to follow their passion in healthcare as midwives and doulas. Shafia continues to lead on issues of birth justice and health equity through speaking, training, and using her social media platform to uplift issues, create discussion, and encourage action. We are honored to have Ms. Shafia Monroe as our guest today. Assalamu alaikum, Sister Shafia, and welcome to On the Square. Thank you so much for joining us. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. So before we begin our talk about uh, Black maternal health, uh, can you share with us your personal Black Muslim theme song? <laughs> that was a fun question. So <laughs> I decided that I'm going to use Sam Cooke's I Was Born by the River. Oh, Because that song makes me think of he was probably born in a little tent probably with the midwife or maybe just with his mm. mom unassisted, but it just brought me back to that, to the era of that time. And wow, I love water. And thank you. Yeah. Say I, I love water too. <laughs> awesome. That's a great choice. Thank you. Okay. So I know you began professionally studying midwifery at 16, but I'm curious to know um, your personal connection to birth work, because like, it seems uh, to be so young and to have that type of passion, it, it seems like it must be deeply rooted. So uh, when did you first learn about midwifery? Well, I love this question and I've been trying to find an easy way to answer. But what I tell people about all of us and myself included, I'll shout myself that often if we look back at our life, we see that we're being groomed from the beginning. So for myself, I'm going to say probably seven years old, because at seven, I began taking care of ill animals. So any dog that was sick or I would find pigeons outside, I just would bring them home and, and try to fix them. By the time I was 10 and 11, I was reading books on how to take care of dogs. I remember having a puppy that someone gave me. It was taken too soon from the house. And I became known in my community as a person to give sick animals to. So someone gave me that puppy. I don't know how I got it. My mom and dad let me keep it. But I remember after I read about how to take care of it, getting up at night, you said put a hot water bottle in the box next to it, wrapped in a, in a towel. I did that to get a clock. And so I got a clock that had ticking sound. And then I had to wake up every so often with the warm milk in the, in the eye drop to feed it, just like I would do as a midwife, getting up the same comfort measures. That puppy did die. And uh, we did bury it, 
as I continued on up until about probably 15, wanting to be a vet, always taking care of animals, you know, saw the puppies born, saw kittens born, uh, just missed the horse being born. And also I was always attracted to elder people who were ill. So even at the age of nine, I remember seeing Miss Perryman, who was blind, where I grew up at. And I, w- I would always go to her house and just sit sit in the house. And she said, oh, do you want the light on? And I realized that she sat in the dark because she couldn't see. And she even brought me to her um the, the, the seeing eye uh, conference. So I learned how to do braille. And I remember wanting to write CV Wonder a letter in braille. They gave the little, the little machine that you poke the holes. So I learned how to do, and I was going to one day write him a letter. I never did. So then fast forward of me wanting to be a vet. My mother died when I was 15 unexpectedly. And I became Muslim a few weeks later. I became Muslim at 15. And then I left my dad's house who was Christian for whatever reason. That's another story, but I moved to a Muslim family's home uh, to live with them. And, and the woman who was, uh, the wife was older and she was actually pregnant, uh, having her fourth child. And I was just absolutely fascinated by her, loved her sister, sister Hada Yusuf. You know, I remember her and she's like so happy. I became a midwife and I would just take care of her, not take care, but just sit around. I'm 16, you know, 15, asking all these questions. She gave me a book to read called Emergency Childbirth. Like, girl, read this book and ask me all these questions. So anyways, uh, I learned a lot from her. And then she said, you know what? You are so interested. Why don't you become an obstetrician? Which I had not really heard of. So I looked because I was going to be a vet all my life. That's all I read about. So I read about what an obstetrician was. I said, okay, I'll, I'll become that. But then I went to go visit my uncle, who said, why don't you become a midwife? Like, well, what's that? So I looked that up. And when I read about what a midwife was, somewhere along the line, I read about these Black women who were midwives in the South, who were spiritual. And, you know, the God spoke to them. They prayed They prayed during the birth. And they were just like, giving, giving, giving. Come, come see you with your 15 kids and try to bring a sheet or try to bring greens out their yard. And the midwives met together on Sunday. And they prayed and they worked together. And it's like, oh, I want to be like them. And at the same time, being in Roxbury, which is a, a black community at that time in Boston, it had the second largest infant mortality rate in the nation. I mean, e- each state claims having the worst outcome, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. for that year, uh, we had very high infant mortality rates. So I was learning about black midwives, learning about black infant mortality. At the same time, it's the Black Power Movement, it's the Civil Rights Movement, it's the rise of the Nation of Islam. So there are all these wonderful things around, you know, taking the ownership you know, do for self leadership, you know, back to Africa, like millions of things are happening in my world at the age of 15 that really shaped me, including my becoming Muslim, you know, and my name being Shafia, which was given to me. And Shafia, a lot of people don't hear it, but it is one of the attributes, Ya Shafi, servant of the healer. So I'm a tool of Shafia. So, you know, that name, that fact that someone gave it to me, said, you know, you're a healer, I'm going to give you this name, really meant a lot to me because I already knew that I wanted to be a vet. And realizing that really midwifery and birth work and veterinary, it is all being servant of the heel of Elias, all about taking care of things that need help, whether it's a human or an animal or a plant. It's, it's the same. It's the same healing. It's the same thing. I'm going to be nice to a plant. I'm not going to break the, the branch off. I'm going to water it. I'm going to give it what it needs to comfort so it could grow. And the same I'm going to do with a pregnant woman or the same I'm going to do with the animal, with the elder or a child. So that is my journey that part. And then I had to go further. Once she told me about becoming a midwife and I learned what a midwifery was, well, what year is this? We're in the seventies. There were mm-hmm. no black midwives around that I knew. So it took me a while to try to find out even how to learn to do this because nobody was in my community that was doing it. So I was really the first black midwife. I'm, I'm going to say started learning at 16. I didn't practice till I was about really 24. It, it was a journey to to learn. I wind up going back to school going to college, taking pre-med courses and standing on the campus, talking to every black woman, excuse me, are you a midwife? <laughs> no. Okay. Excuse me. Are you a midwife? And finally a black lady from Uganda, African woman said, yes, I'm a midwife. Like, oh my God, I know you don't know me, but you have to train me. <laughs> she just looked at like, who is this crazy girl here asking me this, you know, but I bothered her. One thing I want to tell you all, consistency. My mama said, mm. the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And I yeah. stayed on it. She's like, okay, okay, come over to my house on Saturday. And she began to give my first class. So I, I have a nice story of learning with midwives from parts of Africa, uh, Muslim midwives from Pakistan. In the end, I found some older midwives from um, Alabama service. And then lastly, my dear friend, Majida Amadadine, we had our babies at the exact same time. I had a home birth of my son and the doctor said, oh, I just helped another black lady. He was a white Jewish guy. So I just helped another black woman have a baby. Um, 
a couple of weeks before you. I said, oh my God, you're giving her a number because nobody was having their babies at home in the 1970s in Roxbury. Like I was like, I thought the only person, I think she was the second person. So we met each other. She was from Alabama. My dad's from Alabama. Her mother was a midwife. She was a nurse and a midwife. We we're just like maybe four years apart. And we just like, we just ran the city after that. We had a blast. Just, you know, <laughs> we formed the nonprofit, which is actually documented, traditional childbearing group, the first nonprofit in the country that promoted home birth for black community as a form of self-determination to deal with the maternal mortality is happening then it's still happening today so we did a lot of political work but mainly we just ran around catching people's babies in their houses and training more black midwives yes wow that is quite a story (laughs) (laughs) so you know and it it makes me think like what you were saying like it really you answered like a calling, you know, like you always cared yeah, about animals and plants and people. And so it, it's definitely seems from a lot, you know, like that this is what you were supposed right. to do. That, then that's amazing. <laughs> it is. It's amazing when you can see it, you know, and like you said, on a spiritual level, you know, I really thank the creator. I thank a lot that I was born to do this, but also that, that also that I recognized I was born to do. So it didn't shock me like, mm. oh, like, oh, how do you go from being a midwife? To, how do you go from being a veterinarian to a midwife? Well, it was the exact, exact same work. And I was mm. just being groomed, you know, to, how mm. do you get up at 11 o'clock at night to take care of something? Like, mm-hmm. like a meal, you know, someone's in labor, you know, every 30 minutes you're getting up to rub their back. Every 15 minutes you're getting up because they're transition, contraction every three minutes. So you're getting up and you're staying there. And so it was like a grooming to get up at night. I wake up so easy at night now, you know, I, since I was 11, mm-hmm. I've been, I just wake up. So if you're in labor, that's fine with me. I'm just going to wake up and pop on over to your house. So I, I'm very grateful for uh, the recognition and the experience that I had to do what I do today. And it all counts and nothing's in vain. Everything is for a reason. Awesome. Yes, absolutely. And so, I, you know, just from what you're saying and realizing how long that you have been uh, doing birth work, do you know how many babies you have helped bring into the world? <laughs> so I tell people <laughs> I've done, you know, I would say some hundreds, but not thousands, because when mm-hmm. I left Boston, Massachusetts in 1990, pregnant with my uh, sixth child, I created the International Center for Autism Childbearing, which is the first uh, national nonprofit, international nonprofit that really created uh, a movement. That's why I got the name, created this movement to promote black midwifery, you know, to elevate it as an independent voice. We're not part of man and not part of American culture. You know, nobody it was like our own organization. And so that was my, I, I, I labored on that nonprofit and birthed that. So that is what I was doing and not was not able to do the birth, the actual physical births Mm -hmm. and run this national organization that has done so much. And I would say that midwifery is about catching babies for sure, which I love. But also I have have talked to thousands of women Mm. on perinatal counseling, you know, how to find a midwife, what their rights are, the childbirth classes. I, have, I, I did catch a baby six months ago here in Portland. Every now and then someone <laughs> catches me in, in, in a good, not in a good mood, but where I'm not traveling. So because right. of, uh, before COVID, I was traveling probably 17 times a year. So I was never, you know, because I did the doula trainings all over the country. Mm-hmm. So every two months I was someplace else in the country. Because of COVID, I've been still. So someone said, I'm having a baby. Like, hey, perfect. I'm not going anywhere. I can help you. And she was just like 20 minutes from my house, which is always my ideal birth when they're close by. <laughs> yes. Well, that's truly community midwifery because once the baby's born, I like to practice like the black midwives I read about who came to your house every day and they clean your house. They change your bed, which I do. We run the bath water, we wash the tub out for you. You know, we, we, we massage you. You know, I cook all my African-scented postpartum meals and I bring them over. I make the teas while I'm there. I put the baby on my back so mom can go to sleep. So I do that for like about 40 days. So if they are close to me, I can do a better job. I'm not driving an hour to get there and an hour to get back. So I do like to do births that are, I call community midwifery. So I can do what I want to do for my, according to my, my training. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So speaking of your organizations um, and in your teachings and lectures, I've noticed that the words traditional and full circle are prominent Um and I want to know what is traditional childbirth? What, what, is, what do you mean by that? And what is a full circle birth worker? Those are good questions. So, yes, traditional childbearing. 
and of course, International Center for Traditional Childbearing in Portland, Oregon, in Boston, Massachusetts, it was the traditional childbearing group. So I, I like that word because that word means information passed on by word of mouth. And so African-Americans as a rule, because we weren't allowed to read during enslavement, and, you know, we're, we're oral people. And even in Africa, we have the griot where we are able to give, you know, long historical stories. So my teaching, though we do use evidence-based, we use, we use literature, but mainly is traditions that are passed on by word of mouth. Because most of the things that we learn around the African-American midwife of the 19th, 20th century, most of it really is not in a book. It really has come from years of talking to elder people, men and women over the years, to get the information of... You know, when someone was having a baby, you know, like my dad said, you know, automatically at at nine at eight months, you know, women would no longer pick anything up. You know, he came from the rural south, nineteen thirteen, where you were pumping and chopping wood. Automatically, men knew they would take that over, whether you were, uh, whether you were their wife or not. They saw you doing. They would just that's just how they were raised. So, the information is by word of mouth, and then full circle. I use that word SMC full circle doula because. It has no beginning. It has no end because the mm-hmm. African-American wife, again, of this 19th century, she didn't have an end date with her work. You know, it says that she worked until she died or she worked until that person died. So back then, midwives were not just working with pregnant women. That is actually a Eurocentric uh, term because midwife mm-hmm. is English. It means middle, the middle, to be with the wife, to be with the woman, to help them. It's not a bad thing. But for African-American midwives of old, maybe because of enslavement or whatever it was, we did everything. You know, we took care of sick babies. We even pierced the ears. And actually, I learned mm-hmm. how to circumcise okay. from a from a black midwife from Alabama. She taught me how to circumcise bubises. They even did circumcision. So we did, we did a lot more. So it's full circle. And as we talk about the postpartum period that people are now talking about, where, you know, before you had the baby, you just go home, nobody cared. That was never part of the African-American experience. Definitely, not only did a midwife know, but the whole family knew how to take care of a pregnant person. And I'm mm. writing a book now, and I'm saying, I'm in Boston, and I remember being pregnant with one of my babies, and all my friends happy from the South. And they always saying the same thing. I'm getting ready to go back home now to my mother, and that's also an African tradition. When you get pregnant, you go to your mom's house, you go back to your village, because that's who's going to take care of you. And so these women get got to go home, which means your mother's cooking for you, she's rubbing your back, she's wrapping your stomach, she's holding the baby, she's she telling you it's okay, you know, lay down, don't stress out, you know, you're okay, and all the things that a, that a loving mother does for their daughter and we know that when a person's nurtured after the birth, she's going to nurture her baby better. Because my mother died when I was 15. Like, dang, I don't, mm. I'm not getting that. I would just hear them tell these nice stories. They would come back later. Or African women, like they save up. And their mother comes and says, my mother's coming. That's the tradition. Mm. Your mother comes. Yes. There, there was no doula. You know, your mother, your aunt, your auntie, this whole doula thing. I'm teaching it because we don't have it. But I have four girls. They didn't have any doula. I'm, I'm their mom. Right. I showed up and did my job. <laughs> not going to hire some stranger. I know how to take care of my daughter. She got her hot water bottle. She got her hands handed. She got massage. And I fed her three little boys. I fed her husband. I took him out to the park. I came back and gave her her food. We sit and chit chat for a minute. Okay, you look tired. Go to sleep. No, your friends ain't coming up right now. Tell them you can come back later. And you you, you take care of your daughter. And mm-hmm. her crying like, Mama, don't leave. <laughs> the same my daughter-in-law. You know, my son's like, hey, I got a ticket. She's in labor now from California. So I flew in from Portland to California, and I I, come, I like to get dressed up. So I came in, I think I had like a fur coat on still. I was like, <laughs> you know, she, she's like, interested. Oh, thank you for being dressed up for my birth. <laughs> I got so cute. Yes. Wow. Yes. I would like to get dressed up. I don't wear no scrub. I get like laid out. Mm-hmm. This is this time of celebration, you know? Of course, I took my shoes off when I got the coat <laughs> on, but I like to go, like, we're having a party. Yeah, that's beautiful. Baby, that's really beautiful. Yeah, baby's coming. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so you've already shared a little bit, but I wanted to um, hear from you some of the history because I, I've, you know, watched some of your lectures, um, which for our listeners, I would highly recommend you check out Ms. Shafia's website, shafiamonroe.com, where she shares some of these lectures for free access. I've learned a lot from them. Um, but I've noticed, like, especially now, like in the in the last few years, there's been a lot of learning and also unlearning 
of, uh, of and for African-Americans about our histories and cultures and our contributions to the world. And you've done so many lectures on the history of birth work in Africa, from Africa to the Americas and other parts of the world, and also in Islam. So I was wondering if you might share as briefly as possible, I know that's difficult, <laughs> some of that history with us today. And also, um, how do you see it this history existing in contemporary birth practices. Thank you. So I don't, I forgot how much time we have, but let me know. Cause I do like, I've been doing this like <laughs> for over 40 years. So when I get rolling, I start to I roll. Know, so feel free to say, cause there's so much to share, but I would say if I could give like three main points about African tradition around birth, the mm-hmm. first thing is that we show love. So I think that's besides, you know, can you do aromatherapy or what acupuncture point? It doesn't matter. If you can show love and compassion, that is our tradition. You know, the women are nice to the women who are in labor. The Southern black midwives would call you baby and honey, and they would not make you feel bad. The, the third thing is that we have faith for my study that, you know, we didn't have the same kind of fear of childbirth as we have today. Mm. You know, women were a lot stronger. It was just considered normal. It was considered God's work. It wasn't a big deal. In fact, there's a study that took place in the 60s why Black women were less prone back then to go to prenatal care because they felt that it was not an illness. So mm. it was normal mm-hmm. to like, why go to a doctor? I'm just pregnant. I'm okay, which is a great attitude. Now we run in, we want all these ultrasounds, all these tests, and a lot of fear is uh, involved. And the third point is that we birthed standing up, so we did not lay down. Traditionally mm-hmm. in Africa mm-hmm. and in the South, women were walking around to the last minute. They didn't jump in the bed right away. By the time they start working, they're close to eight or nine centimeters, and the women were always were birthing. So I read these great books in the years of the research. They had quilts that they would throw down on the floor, even in the slave enslaved quarters because that's what they remembered that women would squat down uh, to have their babies. And so women did not lay on their back. They either squatted or mainly they had their babies on all fours or they leaned over a chair. So those birth traditions, of course, prevent, it, it makes it easy for the baby to come out. We should be birthing using gravity anyways. That's why people are going to, you know, squatting and standing and all mm-hmm. fours. I know we've moved to the, to the, to the uh, people having the babies in water and people love it. And I did have one water birth out of my seven, and it, I did not get out the tub at that point, but we're still not squatting, you know, mm-hmm. we're sitting on, we, so we don't tend to squat in the tub, but um, those are the three things that I think I would let people know the most additional, you know, to show love and compassion for a laboring person, you know, keep her upright, encourage her to walk around as much as possible, let her know that she's not sick, you know, teach our daughters not to be afraid of having babies. We've been in society mm-hmm. now, we're afraid of our periods. We're, we're afraid of being women. You know, it's going to, I want to have a baby. I want to have a cesarean section on my boyfriend's birthday and I don't want the pain. I don't want to breastfeed. <laughs> my breasts are going to change. And I've heard mm-hmm. like amazing things over the years. So yeah. trying to eradicate all that. And it's not our fault because the TV has perpetuated fear. Every show that you see of a woman having a baby, she's always dying and she's always being mm-hmm. rescued by a doctor. We don't see her being rescued by a, a nurse and she's always on her back. So we only know what we see. Yes. You know, we're programmed. So finding ways to deprogramming ourselves so that we can go back to our full self of having babies, which which is going to give us less problems, less cesarean sections, and less interventions. The more things that happen to your body, the more problems. Because again, Mm -hmm. as we know, having a baby is not an illness. It's an experience. Maybe 9% of people will have a problem having a baby. Most pregnancies are problem-free. I know we've been conditioned that Black women are more prone for having maternal mortality, more prone for having early babies. Though this is happening, it's not because of genetics. We know for a fact it's Mm -hmm. due to racism. So we have to address, that's the thing we have to address. Okay. Thank you. Islamically... Mm-hmm. Uh, I I love to use the Surah Yasin. That's the one that we're told is is good for um, for anything around mm-hmm. birth. But also, I love that the little baby Jesus told his mother to shake the the fresh dates on her while she was in labor. Yes. So of course the dates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the same thing. I think just you know because even Muslim women are also buying into the fear. You know, but having more mm-hmm. faith. Doesn't mean we don't use science, but you know, using Quran, uh, you know, even prostration as long as you can. I see women sitting; they have to they do what you have to do. If a medical problem, we should push ourselves if we can to make salat tradition as much as we can. Because every time you go down, it gives the baby space to churn, and that's the exact same position that you use if you're having a breach. They make you do that 
I'll tell you to do that so the baby mm-hmm. can flip from butt to head first. So it is a good position if you can hold it. Mm-hmm. But of course, always, you know, use your um, your scent, use your reason. If you don't feel good, definitely sit in a chair or sit on the floor. The other thing, too, I want to say when people are making salat who are Muslim, we can hold our babies. Our babies don't, should not be crying when we make salat because the Prophet Muslim said that when you're making prayer and a baby cries, the imam should shorten the prayer in order not to give the mother distress. That's a hadith. So, and it's, it's a, a well-known one. So when the baby's crying, women should pick their babies up. We're, we're supposed to. To let your baby cry while you make salat, that's not pleasing, in my opinion, to the creator. Mm-hmm. Because Allah is about mercy and compassion and kindness and sensibility. That's the new baby. Pick your baby up. And, you know, all my kids make salat. They all, every single one, <laughs> they, 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 never, they held them. They go down with me, back up. Yeah. And they never cried, and it, it was wonderful. And they grew up making slot as babies because I was holding them to do it. Mm-hmm. Yes, that makes sense. Okay, so <clears throat> I want to talk about uh, the Black maternal and infant health disparities in America. Um, we do know that Black women are, the, st- the standard statistic I know of, is three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women, and that America has extremely high mortality rates for, for a developed country. So I know a lot of the statistics are bleak and they add to a culture of trauma for Black Americans that gets so much attention in the media. But right. I see in your work and your approach to Black maternal health, there's this push towards a culture of hope and healing and wellness. And, um, you know, I think everything about like your teaching style and the way you present and share your knowledge on your platforms is affirming and reaffirming that we as black people, as black women, black men, black families can overcome these statistics and improve our birth outcomes. And I believe that and I, and I see it, but I, but I often wonder, you know, how do we make this the norm? You know, I'm thinking about the challenges within our communities. Like for myself, when I was pregnant with my son, when I told people I was, you know, I was going to have a midwife and I was going to, I wanted to have uh, an unmedicated birth. I got a lot of criticism. You know, I I was laughed at, I was made fun of, you know, it was like, yeah, right. right, This isn't going to happen, you know? And so I, I feel like there's like a lot of distrust and ignorance of midwifery and doulas and home births. Right. And, you know, the, and then there's the external challenges, right? The medical racism, the medical violence that women are experiencing in hospitals across the country. So I am wondering, how do we overcome these challenges? How do we continue to fight for Black families? And and that's what surprises me. When we talk about from an Islamic perspective, you know, I'm telling uh, the Muslim, well, first I have to say, when I did midwifery in Boston, the majority of my of the families I served were Muslim. They were from the Nation of Islam for sure mm-hmm. and Orthodox. That was the, the most women, but that was a long time ago. That that I don't see that the same anymore. There's been a lot of like you said, fear has come in since. Mm-hmm. But you know, I always would tell the brothers, you know, you want your wife to have privacy, why don't you should you should want a midwife? You don't want some male doctor walking in on her. <laughs> so I would try to use that approach. But also to be honest, sis, I have talked to the imams for years. And my husband's an imam, so he knows I've been in his mm-hmm. ear. Why are we not at the Why are we not at the at the uh, member talking about pregnancy and birth from an Islam perspective? We could because that's mm-hmm. what people hear, and and when the husbands and sons and the women hear the benefit, the conversation goes on. I've done the same thing the Christian community and the Jewish. Why are we not? You know, we talk about breast. this this pink? This uh, what is it called? Pink Day for Susan G. Coleman around breast cancer in the church. Mm, we have mm-hmm. HIV Day. We have so many days that the churches have taken on, but I never heard them take on infant mortality, breastfeeding, or mm-hmm. mature mortality. Even breastfeeding Islam. I'm seeing sisters breastfeed. It says two years in the Quran. I'm not seeing two years. I'm seeing people that masturbated were separated using a bottle. When, mm. you know, are you not? I asked, are you, are you still breastfeeding? They say, yeah, I just went on my outside. I said, okay. You know, I'm very opinionated. Like, well, you can still breastfeed here. Um, and encouraging women to breastfeed their children at the masjid, even if they have to go, you know, turn their back however they want to do it. So I think that's the first thing. We really need to have a, a call to action within our own 
faith-based communities, whether it's Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. But if you are black, we need this message to be saying the same thing. Sisters, brothers, you should be breastfeeding your children. And only one time in New York, I went to Juma and there was an imam who talked about breastfeeding. If I wasn't Muslim, I would have hugged that guy. I ran over, oh my God, you don't understand. Like, I was like, yeah, she's she been telling me for years, brother. He talked about the importance of having your daughters and wives to breastfeed. Don't get that. I mean, first time mm-hmm. since I, I've been Muslim more than my, my life. I'm, since I was 15, I don't get my age, but for my whole life, I've outlived my 15 years. So yes. <laughs> only one time, that's a shame. Only one yeah. time have I heard uh, Imam talk about the benefits, but yet it's in the Quran to wean mm. your child should take two years. So we're not, in my opinion, I don't want to get going on it because you can see I get a little irritated because <laughs> right. I don't want us to talk about stuff and we're not living up to them. That can make a huge impact because if your baby's born early and you're breastfeeding, it's going to save your baby's life. If you're breastfeeding, it's going to help prevent hemorrhaging. That's why for home birth, you have to breastfeed. It causes the oxytocin to be released. It's going to reduce stress. It's just that alone is a first step for helping our babies who are born too small and helping women not to um, hemorrhage and make women have to sit down because only you can breastfeed. That's your gift from the creator to sit down and do nothing and mm. making sure that our, our husband's family say, you're breastfeeding right, leave me alone and take care of me because I'm doing my job. Now you need to do your job, which is make sure I have food, shelter, and a nice environment so I can produce milk and not say, well, you know, you can just give him a bottle or I'll pump your breast so I can do it and you can go back to work in the kitchen. Mm. No, mm-hmm. do not pump you all. That is your only hope of sitting still. So <laughs> you don't get no bottle. <laughs> I'm yes. breastfeeding. You go right. cook. So those that that's one easy thing that we could do. But you know, in, in in teaching our children, boys and girls early, the normalcy of pregnancy so that we can get rid of the fear and how to take care of ourselves. I've met so many women, even Islam, who are anemic. Like everyone has mm-hmm. low iron. Mm-hmm. And that's the major health problem. Besides headaches, if you're not pregnant and low energy, once you get pregnant, it causes even more problems. So I would always tell people, we have to look at preconceptional health. How do we get our, and, and the new study just came out, it was on my, my Facebook page, uh, Sheffield Monroe Consulting Facebook page. It came from PubMed. And we think it's just women, but now they're saying men who have poor health have uh, fractured sperm and they create embryos that are unhealthy. That's why it takes mm, yeah. two to make the baby. And yes. so it's not just the woman's fault something happens. It's both mm-hmm. parties have an equal responsibility for being in good health. We need our sons to eat well, you know, and not be around secondhand smoke. Mm-hmm. So I think nutrition early in life, you know, teaching, again, like I said, I have four daughters. I've taught them all your life that once you start having your menses, you have to eat green foods every day. You have to take this, this kind of diet. Otherwise, you're going to be anemic. And fortunately, mm-hmm. none of them are. I was asking them. And my sons, because they, you know, they, they were born in a midwife home, they already understand. So, you know, the ones who got married, you know, I told them, interview your wife before you get married. Does she want a home birth? Does she been best friend for two years? Like, don't say later. You could, mm-hmm. These are things that you want to ask as a, as a man. You know, what do you want your potential wife to do that you believe in around having a healthy birth? So, of course, my husband's, my son's wives, they all had home birth because that was important to them. They talked about that earlier. Like, would you have your baby at home if we, if we get married? And I think if they said no, they wouldn't marry him. So I don't know if there's pressure or not, but at least have the conversations, no argument later. Yeah. And of course, I always tell the woman, it's your right to birth where you want. You're having it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the maternal mortality, you know, we have to learn to um, ask questions about mm. the our care provider. Like, you know, how long have you been a doctor? How many mothers have died in your care? Do you recognize, mm. really, do you recognize hemorrhaging? You know, are you okay working with a black woman and with a black man, my husband, my son, my boyfriend, whoever? You know, how will you protect, how will you protect me when I come to the hospital and have my baby? What will you do to make sure that I'm okay, that I'll be heard? Because that's what they say, that the problem is that, not that we don't know what the problem is, but we do. We walk in, hey, I'm having a headache. I'm hypertension. I'm bleeding too much. I don't feel right. And they send us back home. Mm-hmm. You know, the stories are horrendous. On my website, Shafim Rowe, dot com under blogs i talk about the stories of of shalanda who went back like five times and her blood pressure like was 200 over 80 180 that's like illegal numbers literally you know and they kept sending her home so her mother found her stroked out and dying and dead on the floor the poor husband in the hospital saying my wife's afraid she thinks she's bleeding too much and the nurse saying we don't have time right now she hammered right in front of her husband the blatant racism in the healthcare system is on every level, maternal mortality, cardiovascular for, for black men, you know, prostate cancer, breast, it, it's everywhere. It's not one thing. And I think when I say full circle in healer, 
we can't just hone in on one thing because we have to fix the system. If the whole system's broke, we're going to keep getting hurt on different levels, whether it's pediatric poor care for our children or our seniors not getting the right care or the pregnant woman. I want to see from, from a holistic approach. You know, fix the system so no matter what I have as a Black person, I'm going to get quality, equitable care. And so that is my message that we just keep, you know, pushing on everything. Make sure we're voting, you know, mm-hmm. get to know your legislators because that's also real. There are a couple of bills that have just come out and it's lost the name of it, but it's the Honest 12 uh, Maternal Mortality mm-hmm. Bill that just came out. They redid it. So there's a lot of good things in it of how they want to address um, systemic racism. Well, actually, they didn't say that. They said a whole bunch of other things they're going to do. It's, yeah, it's the Mommy, Mommy uh, Boost Act 2021. And it's the Black Maternal Health uh, Mommy's uh, Bus Act. It includes 12 yes. bills to end maternal mortality and mm-hmm. close racial and ethnic disparities. So I, I went through it. It's really good, but I still want to hear um, systemic racism and how do we hold hospitals accountable mm. who have a high rate of maternal mortality for Black women? Because the CDC says that, quote, 60% a maternal mortality is preventable. That means 60%. That's huge. Yes. That's more than half people who are dying should not be dying. It could have been prevented. That means that the black women who are dying should not have died, which you already know. And yes. so therefore, if they're dying, what are we going to do to hold these hospitals accountable for it? Because they're getting federal funding and other types of money. And how do we hold the doctor accountable? Now, yes, granted, things do happen as a midwife. You know, I've done the best I could and some babies aren't going to make it. And I think that's where mm-hmm. my Islam comes in. Sometimes we know that what in the Wahrajun from Allah we come and to Allah we all return. But at the same time, tie your camel. Have I done the absolute best? I ignore that person? That's different. You know, no, I mm-hmm. didn't ignore it. I did everything possible. But you mm-hmm. say, hey, go back home. It's not a big deal. So I'll end there. I'll just ask another question. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, that that's and that kind of plays into my next question about um, fear and birth. You know, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, again, when I was pregnant with my son, uh, social media wasn't really a big thing at the time. And, you know, and I recognize now how fortunate I was to have a, a you know, quiet, peaceful time. You know, like I, right, I went, right. I, I did the walking every day. I, I went to my local park and went for long walks and you know, enjoyed meals. And it was, I had a mostly peaceful time, you know, I didn't know about black maternal health disparities at the time, you know, and and in a way I'm glad for that, (laughs) but I think about how different things might be for me if I was preparing for birth now. And uh, I think I would have a lot more fear. So thinking in that, like, what would, what would you say to, you know, to especially to black people who want to have families, but they're afraid because of what they're hearing right. about birth trauma and mortality. Well, I, I always tell people that, first of all, it's your God-given right to, to, to reproduce if you choose to. And I wouldn't let the system dictate whether or not I can have a child or not. And I always, when I see a client, they say the same thing now the client spoke with, spoke with. And I have to tell them to say out loud, that's not going to happen to me. Like, don't mm. own that. You know, okay. most black women, by the way, are not dying. Yes, it's a high mm. number, yes. but most aren't. You know, most right. are living to raise their children. So, so we have to put things in perspective. When you look at statistics, you have to look at how many. It's, you know, it's it's 150 out of 100,000. There's still too mm. many. But that's how you measure right. it. The, so if you look at how many, you know, per 100,000, yes, it's higher than white people, but mm-hmm. it's definitely not 99%. So you have to put it in that perspective. And God bless those who who who, who lost their lives having a baby. And, and, you know, may God help their families. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to negate the severity because that's my daughter. I'm traumatized. You right. know, so it's personal. But, but, but as a, a researcher, I have to look at the bigger number to tell in this audience that most likely it's not going to be you. You have to tell yourself that, that you mm-hmm. are well. You got to own that health. You're going to have that faith that you're not going to have the problem. And you're going to ask the right questions. So if you do have the problem, you're going to, you're going to listen to your care provider um, mm-hmm. and follow directions. You're going to find an African-American midwife, African-American obstetrician, African-American nurse practitioner. These are all who can deliver babies, African-American naturopathic physician. And at mm-hmm. the end of the day, you're going to get a dual, if not get any white midwife who, who's, who's kind to you. Because not even yes. about the color. At the end of the day, any midwife mm-hmm. has a better outcome as a rule compared to a medical, you know, provider because their training is different. So 
I, you know, get who you can get, or if you can find a Muslim provider, but, mm-hmm. you know, interview your people and know that you're going to be okay. I said, Hey, I had seven kids and like yourself, we came out fine. Most of the people mm-hmm. I know have come out fine. Yes. Uh, at the same time, you know, just to put the truth out there, I did meet a woman a couple of years ago. She's like 29 and she lost three friends in two years to maternal mortality. That was like a shocker. Yeah. Right. But we can't, right. we can't, you know, that's the thing about America they make us afraid because we have everything too much. You know, we're more prone for COVID-19 right now. We're having more reactions to COVID-19 vaccination. We're more prone for diabetes. Like, you know, like, what are you trying to say? Like, should we just like jump off the earth? We get everything? <laughs> Personally, right. I'm not going to own that. I'm not going to own those statistics. Yeah. Like, what are white people getting? By the mm-hmm. way, the material mortality true. rate for white women is climbing. And their highest mm-hmm. rate is suicide. And no one talks about what they do. They have the highest rate of child accidents for their children. The kids are always falling out windows and hmm. running across the street hit by cars. And so mm-hmm. because, but they don't focus on them, they focus on us. And so they don't talk about Latina, what's happening in their community. What are they more prone for? Or the Asian or the Native American or the Russian. Mm-hmm. And we have to ask that question. Why are you always focusing on us? Why do we have all these problems? Yes, that's so. that's a great point that you make, you know. Um, and that's why, you know, I know for like for myself, like, I, you know, I'm in contact with a lot of people in the birth work world and, you know, I follow you on Instagram. So I have that constantly feeding me hope, you know, and, re- and realizing like right. that's in, in, in the knowledge that that's not the case, you know, that uh, exactly. for everybody. But I know, right. you know, it, it's definitely uh, who are who are you connected with makes a big difference. You know, what are you following? Right. You know. And also, yeah. you know, again, that these statistics are coming because of neglect. So it's different if I'm like, oh, I'm just going to die because I'm black. There's something wrong with me, mm-hmm. which is how they're trying to promote it. But it's not that I'm black and healthy, but the people taking care of me give poor care. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. So then mm-hmm. we have to find out, like I said, we have to interview uh, the person because we're not genetically inferior. We actually are actually very strong people as a race, but very strong, which is why they brought us to this country to work because the other people they try to bring in on their work and die from the European disease and we did not. So we have to remember how strong we really are genetically. And even babies who are born too small of African descent tend to live and other babies don't. So we don't hear about the the strength base. We have to go from resilience. Like, you know, we're strong and our babies are strong and most likely we're going to be fine. And if you're hearing a lot of bad news, like turn it off, don't listen to it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I do try mm-hmm. to talk about, I do present from a strength based approach. I'm not going to feed into the negativity. That's not true. They're not saying the truth. The reason why African-Americans have more help on because we have inequity and equity means that by design, they're causing problems for certain communities, which is majority African descent, Native American, other groups. Can't access good food easy. You know, housing complexes built around uh, toxic sites. This is a fact. You know, our schools mm-hmm. are full of teachers who could not work in the suburb and wind up coming to our school to teach our kids who aren't qualified. And then because of one problem, they put detectors in our schools. So our kids are being treated like criminals at age eight and five years old. That's the problem, you know. And that's yes. not teaching our kids black history at birth, you know, mm-hmm. who they are to give them the information. Because I mean, a lot of this, I'm like this a lot because, again, I grew up in a very blessed time. I come from a time where food, you, you can't go through black power as an era where James Brown is singing, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And you got people with dashika and beautiful hair raising their fist up. And, you know, that, that affects you as a child. And I, I grew up with that. So and my mother was like that. So I'm very, it's already in me that I'm okay and I'm going to be okay. But if you haven't heard that, you didn't learn it. And we're setting our kids out of our communities for a better education with the only child of color, the only black child in the school, because it's a Spanish emerging or a Japanese emerging, then mm-hmm. our kids are affected by that. They are. Yes. And so we mm-hmm. have to we have to counteract it. So even when Asian kids went to I went to Abraham Lincoln School in the seventh grade, a lot of Asian kids went there, Chinese children. But every Saturday or every day they had to go to Chinese school to maintain their, their Chinesism with their mm-hmm. language, their people, their accomplishments. You know, the Jewish people go to Hebrew school, you mm-hmm. know, on Saturday. So we don't have a school mm-hmm. that we send our kids yes. to, to learn about who they are. So we hear this stuff and like, oh my God, I'm, I'm genetically inferior, epigenetics, you know, I'm, I'm industrial complex. And just like, you know, majority, we don't know what's going on. Yes. And so we have to educate. And I think for birth workers, full circle, the main thing I teach in my training is exactly what you're hearing, that if you're an SMC full circle doula, if nothing else, empower your family with, with the facts, information, 
and in love of self as an African descent person and love of self as a human being. And that is going to go a lot. If you feel good about yourself, you know that you have value, you have a right to be on this earth and to live your life in the best way that the creator gave you, then you're more armed to go in there. And definitely we include the father and not education. This is not a woman's movement in the, in the mm-hmm. South with the black midwives. It was a family movement. It's, it was community. Never was the black midwife only with the woman. There's so much documentation of her always pulling the man aside, talking to him, educating him, comforting him, supporting him as well so that he could go back into his home and do a good job. And so that's what we need. We need a strong family because families make communities and the community makes the world. And that's what I promote in my in my trainings based on the tradition of the 20th century and the 19th century African-American midwife. Yes, thank you. And just to kind of bring it home, because that was actually my last question about com- community, um, you know, like for people, those like us who are like in this world, right, with babies and moms and things like that, you know, I, I'm thinking about people who are not in those worlds. You know, like when I tell things that I know to people who, you know, they're like, they know nothing about that, right? So, but I but I think we all play a role, you know, um, Absolutely. If if we care about black women, if we care about black babies, this is where it starts. Exactly. So, how, so for for our listeners, like, how can someone who's not in that world, how as an individual, how can they help black mothers and black families? So I'm going to answer that, but I just want to say really quick, there is a movement I feel in this nation that's really um, demising. The, the power of, of, of the family and particularly of the mother. Because if mm-hmm. you look at African artifacts um, and even Islam, when the prophet said, and they said, about, you know, who should I worship after Allah? He said, your mother, your mother, your mother, and then your father. Yes. And, mm-hmm. in Islam, and in African tradition, every artifact you see as a rule is a pregnant woman. A lot of things about women in Africa. So a lot of reverence for women here. There's no reverence for women. And also we're moving towards animals. People say now that they're a mother of five dogs Every commercial we see is a dog selling a car. Literally, if you look at these, the dogs are everywhere. You hardly see children. I see, I'm in the airport. All the dog pictures have masks on, no children, just dogs mm-hmm. are teaching us. So it's a psychological <laughs> movement happening right now that people aren't aware. They're, so now we have people like, I don't want any kids. I got three dogs, black women. I got four dogs. You know, they don't want children, but not, it's okay. You don't want them, but you don't like children and you don't respect people who choose to have children. That's a big mm, problem that yes. we never had historically. Historically, mm-hmm. whether kids or not, we value children. And when I talk to African women, I say I have seven. They're like, oh, my God, you're so blessed. How did they make a big deal? <laughs> yes. I talk to American women. It's like, why did you have so many? Mm. You know, I don't get a compliment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, you know, you did something wrong. So it's the American shift. And because we're in this country, we're going along with that. I don't know if it's, a, if it's the, 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 the uh, cryogenics or the Planned Parenthood on this tone or whatever's happened. But there is a shift in this country that's getting us more and more not to support family. So we're, we're taught to go to college, get our degree, get a house, get a car, get an iPhone, you know, and, and make mm-hmm. money. So children are not in the conversation. Who's having all the kids right now are the Russian immigrants. They're having very large families because America wants to whiten out this country. I teach mm-hmm. cultural competency. We knew that in 2050, it's supposed to be a country of color. And, and white folks, by the way, are not having children. And they're the oldest group in the country. There's more older white because they're not reproducing. But um, And we still are, and Latina are. But right now, they're bringing tons of Russian families in this country. And they have like nine and eight children. And so the second mm-hmm. generation, they're going to be white Americans. So it's going to bring the numbers back up. Oregon, mm-hmm. the second largest co- co- uh, language, is Russian in, in the state. So no one talks about it. We're focusing on dark-skinned Mexicans not coming in. You know, dark-skinned Haitians can't come in. Africans can't. But the Europeans are coming in like crazy by choice. So just to be aware, there's a shift going on. All I can say is people need to wake up, educate, and know that if you don't got no black babies, you don't have no black race. You don't have no black community. So that, that alone, if you care about not wanting to become extinct, that alone mm-hmm. should motivate us. Um, second. You know, it's our duty as, you know, we say we're Christian or Muslim or Baha'i, all these faiths we call ourselves. Well, you know, that is the creator reproducing that energy. So that in itself is a spiritual act to take care of somebody and be kind to them, at least if they're having a baby, you know, to, to congratulate people. Yes. I don't know if you got a congratulations, but I talk to women all the time who are black. Who congrat- congratulates? Like nobody. 
I didn't get no congratulations. Oh, wow. You know, no one says, oh, why are you having a baby? Are you sure you want it? Did you plan it? These are all American questions. Historically, you just said congratulations. Or we, what we really said was we would say, God bless you. 50 years ago, I'm praying, oh, my God, God bless you. But we don't say that. Now it's like, you're going to keep it? You know, do you plan it? Um, all kinds of questions that a person, nothing about I'm happy for you. So we just, I, I can't really express because I just see where we're headed, but I'm glad you brought the question up. And I hope that sororities and, you know, individual professional women, professional men can see this as a call to action that we support our community to procreate if they choose to, and that we help them and not judge them. And not say, this is your problem. You wanted to have a baby. Don't ask mm-hmm. me to babysit. Or she shouldn't have had it if she couldn't afford it. All these things that people say. Or she's only yes. uh, 19 when, in fact, she was raped by her uncle or father or brother. We didn't even talk about that. And that's mm-hmm. in every faith. Right. You know, Christianity, Islam, everywhere. You know, it's like, oh, we blame the young girl. And, in fact, somebody exploited her. And she's too scared to say. And we're too naive to even ask the question or believe her when she tells us. So we have a lot of work mm-hmm. to do. And again, yes. that's what I'm all about, have have been about, will continue to be about. I think a lot of that, you know, I have this blessing in me that I promote what I'm talking about to everybody consistently. And um, I'm proud that so many people have taken our training and so many people have an exact same conversation now that I am around the country. So it's no longer, it's, it's what it should be. You know, it's, 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 it's percolating. And I am an optimist, and so I do believe mm-hmm. that in time, we will do a full circle, because life is a circle, full circle. Everything goes around. So I think we'll start coming back around, because mm-hmm. you're having this show, and so many people have podcasts on this conversation now. No bills are passing. We're getting more black midwives, more doula trainers, you know, more men are, like, supporting their daughter, wife, except to be a midwife, or to have a home birth, or to have a water birth, or whatever they choose to. So I, I see a change. I see, I see mm-hmm. things getting better. But keep yeah. your conversations going, like more podcasting. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to just keep it, you know, more articles. If we could get uh, Beyonce or Erica Badu to write a song about this or, <laughs> you know, whoever yes. who's the most popular to get mm-hmm. to, to the masses. Because we're not, we're on Google and Google teaches nothing, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you. Yeah, that I, I'm, I'm an optimist, too. I, I do believe that. You know, um, I, I see so much, you know, so much good, you know, and and like you said, the good, it, it doesn't get as much attention, but it is more so than what what we see that's not good. So right. uh, thank you so much for uh, being here today and for sharing your wisdom with us. And I hope people are inspired. <laughs> yes. All right. So thank I just you. Say, I just, I just really quick, if you go to my website, chefbeamonroad.com, under Midwife Free, there's a free chart you can print out. And it does give the history of all yes, the work that yes. Black midwives have, have given. And we do give out a scholarship every year up to $2,000 to any Black midwife student. So we'll be announcing that again pretty soon. And to be sure to join on e-newsletter. So again, if you go to the website, subscribe, put your name in there. And I'm doing some recipes occasionally for my book. Ooh. I'm going to be in there and just update. So, yeah. I want right. to put that Thank out you. There. Yes, you yeah, do have sure. a lot of great recipes. I love all the food that you share. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of On the Square, Real Talk on Race and Islam in the Americas, a special podcast series brought to you by Sapelo Square and The Maiden. We give thanks to our special guest today, Shafia Monroe. You can find more information about what we discussed, including links and more by visiting sepalosquare.com slash on the square or themaydan.com slash podcast. Our theme music was created by Fanatic on Beats. Salam alaikum and thank you for listening.